CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Josh Marshall podcast. We have, you know, we have two big stories that are, well, we've got, you know, more than two big stories, but two big stories that we're going to kind of kick off with today. And they're both very big. One is this ongoing situation with this trucker, quote unquote. It's always important to kind of, you know, it's not like the truckers. It's not like, you know, the trucker community in Canada has spoken and this is where they're at. This is this is um, some truckers and uh, a protest that is largely driven and organized and uh, pushed forward by a mix of far-right groups in Canada and in the U.S. In any case, that is still uh, ongoing. And then we have this continuing game of brinksmanship in Russia and Ukraine. And this has been going on for, I mean, you know, depending on your on your time scale, it's been going on for, for years or months, but it's been particularly intense over the last few weeks. And it seemed like things were calming down and now it seems maybe it's not. There was some shelling this morning and we're, anyway, we're going to get to that. On, on the Canadian thing, the thing I want to make clear is I think it is important to see both of these incidents, both of these situations, as part of a much broader story. And that is the battle between authoritarianism and civic democracy globally right now. Now, there are different permutations of it, but they're both part of the same thing. And they are also examples of how that basic conflict, which our world, which the globe has been in the midst of for, you know, seven or eight years, uh, those things have been brought to the, the, the forefront by, by COVID. COVID, you know, you remember those little things, the, uh, those, little, those little snow globes, little plastic things, you shake it up and all the snow comes down. You know, COVID has kind of done that to the whole world. It's shaking the whole, you know, it's shaking the whole globe. A lot of things break and everything's turned upside down and it creates a lot of chaos and uncertainty. And it has further weakened, stressed the forces of um, national community and trust that keeps nation states together. And it has also brought this, in, in, in various ways, brought this conflict between, again, authoritarianism and civic democracy to the forefront. We see this in this situation in, in Canada. Now, what has happened uh, over the last few days, two, two kind of two separate things have happened. One is um, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, declared a state of emergency which gives him certain uh, greater powers. He didn't actually do all that much. He kind of created more powers that the local police forces uh, can use. He has refused to mobilize the military. And he's basically left it to the police forces. He just kind of gave them some more authorities. And what's happened in the last few days is they have been able to open up these border crossings that were becoming not just an issue for Ottawa, but for the whole US and Canadian economy, because those are big economic transit points, particularly for the auto industry up in the Great Lakes region. Uh, you know, certain things are produced in Canada, shipped over to the US to be assembled into cars and vice versa. So that has been, uh, for the moment, resolved. Those, those transit points are open again. So it's back to being, to an extent, an Ottawa issue. The rest of the trucks have not left Ottawa, and that's still that is still kind of in motion. How they're going to be able to 
resolve that. So it seems to maybe be, you know, de-escalating. They're sort of, um, you know, cracking down a bit, but it's it's still very much a work in progress. And most of the most of the uh, most of the big rigs up there, they're they're still in place. And you've got this, you have a an organizing group, the people who are raising money, you know, providing food, giving direction, kind of organizing the whole thing is this mix of far right groups, some white supremacist groups, you know, they're they're running the thing. And that's that that is the that's the case. So not good. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about that. We're gonna get an update from Kate in a moment about the situation on the Russia Ukraine border. And and a fair amount has happened over the last 12 or 18 hours. I'm still skeptical whether this is going to be a big change, but it's literally become kinetic. There's been some shelling, and we'll get to that in a moment. Before we do, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Do you like to start your day with a healthy blend of coffee and doom scrolling? Then you need coffee that gives you enough energy to fend off the wild horde of feral dweebs or whoever, whatever other obstacles you face. A Grady's Cold Brew Kit makes it easy to brew up a strong coffee concentrate. Of course, if you wake up feeling a little less ready to battle your enemies, you can also a- always add an extra splash of water or milk to tame the caffeine. With Grady's, every batch you brew has infinite possibilities. Ready to give it your perfect brew? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kay Riga, what is what has happened this morning and overnight in the Russia-Ukraine situation? Yeah. So President Biden told reporters this morning on his way out of the White House that he thinks the risk is, quote, very high that Putin invades in the next few days. And I think the reason why is there have been various movement on pieces that look a lot like Russian pretext to invade Ukraine. Uh, So one of those things is, you know, keep in mind by this point, there are about 150,000 Russian troops massed on the border. We had this whole situation where Putin and was claiming that his troops were drawing back, were de-escalating. America said, you know, that's not true. They're actually adding more troops. Wednesday night, the Russians distributed this 49-page letter to the United Nations detailing all the supposed atrocities that Ukraine has committed. Um, Russia expelled the deputy U.S. ambassador from Moscow with no explanation, just kicked him out. Um, and then we also had, like you mentioned, uh the shelling, which Russian-backed rebels and Ukraine have basically said each other was the one shelling. You know, it's not really cl- super clear where it came from. But all this, all of this kind of adds up to an image of if Russia were to invade, they would probably want to kind of stitch together some kind of pretext. And there have been various incidents that look a lot like pretext in the past few days. So I think that's why, you know, the president is being pretty transparent with the press that it it seems like an invasion could be incoming. Um, and honestly, kind of one of the things about this that has struck me is the transparency of Biden and the whole administration with what's going on. It feels a little bit different than these conflicts usually do to me as someone who, you know, my journalism is not in the foreign policy sphere, but it really feels like they've been fairly candid with what they think is going on. Is, is that your impression, Josh? Yes, it is, and I think there's I think there's two dimensions of that. One is that they ha- there's been a a kind of a constant refrain over the last decade that despite their kind of primitive economy and their authoritarian political culture, that the Russians really kick ass at information warfare. Right, they're kind of always upending everybody and creating false flags and and unclarity and all that kind of stuff. And someone in the U.S. government, or maybe just this has been bubbling up from within the U.S. government, has kind of got to get back in that game. And what is you know what does the U.S. have? The U.S. has lots of information. Now we, we should ask you know is is all of this information completely accurate? That's a basic question. But the U.S. can see a lot. It can see all sorts of stuff from the sky. It has all sorts of signals, intelligence. It knows what the Russians are doing. And they have, as a tactic, kind of said, we're going to broadcast everything you're doing, right? And and that's going to kind of, we're going to take away any sense of surprise. We're, and so so that is that is very different. That is very different. That is putting a 
a whole new, you know, piece on the playing board for the US. And I think what it has, I think part, I mean, some of that is just you want to kind of throw the other side off, right? You want to kind of stick a, 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 a stick into the spokes of their, of their wheel kind of thing and, and, you know, kind of throw off their game. I think the other part of it is that what Russia has wanted to do here is create this looming threat of war that is uncertain but out there and do one of two things one is it just it kind of wears everybody down and you know the ukrainians are going to break the the nato uh countries are going to break the other thing is it it just you know it just creates that sense of uncertainty and loomingness and are we going to do it are we not going to do it are we going to do it and you don't know about it you know kind of it it's it gives them all the initiative and what the U.S. has done is say, you know what? It looks like they are going to invade. It's going to be really bad. And here's some more stuff they're bringing forward. And it just kind of puts it all out there. And I think what that does is that it takes, you know, that is a big tool to be holding a hammer over someone, right? It gives you a lot. And the U.S. has sort of flipped it and said, yep, they're about to lower the hammer on these people. That's pretty bad. It's pretty, you got to be pretty bad to do something like that. And most of the, you know, European countries and NATO and the US have kind of been saying, yeah, it's pretty bad. They must suck, right? So it kind of, kind of uh, uh, flips that. The other thing is as part of that sort of looming threat, I think what Russia has wanted here is we threaten, you offer some concessions, we pocket those concessions, we threaten some more, we say that's not enough. You either give us some more concessions or you say no more concessions. And then we say, okay, we tried. We tried to work this out. And now you're stiffing us and we're going to invade. But the, what the US has done is just kind of said, you know, the Russians have said basically, we're going to invade. And the US has said, you're going to invade. That's pretty bad. And it's just the, the, the dynamic that, that, that I think Putin has wanted has just not, not worked. And so now I think they're in a bit of a jam where they, okay, you've threatened it, so are you going to do it or not? And they may well do it, right? And so I think that's, it, it is a very different dynamic. And I think it's interesting, not that, um, not that I want to sort of, you know, seek the, the, the backing of the sort of established columnists in, in, in the US press. But if you look in the last 48 hours, there's been a number of the sort of, you know, the kind of the blob establishment, foreign policy commentator types saying Biden's actually handled this pretty well. He seems to have kind of uh, uh, boxed Putin into a bit of a corner. Now, it may be a corner that is at the at Ukraine's expense, right? I mean, if he's boxed them in where where uh Russia feels no choice, oh, now we have to invade even though it's going to suck for us. Well, it's still going to suck for Ukraine. So they are kind of caught in the middle here. But the dynamics as you say, they're very different. They're very different. And I do think the US has has played this played a poor hand fairly well so far. It's funny because I I think so too. And I also think with equal conviction that Biden will not get the amount of credit due that playing of the hand that would be in any way comparable with the criticism he got for, you know, Afghanistan, the other kind of major foreign policy event of his administration so far. I think that is 100% right. And part of that, part of that is just you don't get a lot of credit for what didn't happen. Exactly. Right. I mean, you see the, 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 that whole, I mean, I continue to think that the, their policy on Afghanistan was the right one. They got really bad pictures. You know, it, it really upset everybody. And the reality there, you know, right or, right or wrong, the reality is it hurt him a lot. But most people aren't really paying attention to this even now. And, you know, you can't, you know, there's no kind of like, booyah, you never saw those pictures because it didn't happen. Thank you very, appreciate the congrats, right? Um, but I do think it may, it's hard to say what the impact is going to be because we don't know what the, re, what the thing itself is yet. Could help him a bit. You know, elite opinion does have a shaping force overall public opinion. But there's there's no question it's not gonna it's not gonna be like people are you know man on the streets like oh, I was upset about Afghanistan but he just killed it with this Russia Ukraine thing so like I'm Biden's my man again <laughs> you know what can you do it is it's just a thankless so, job it's so fundamentally weird 
that an event on this scale is so fully determined by the whims of one person. And I know, you know, that it's not like that's a new revelation, but I don't know if any of our listeners have been watching the Olympics, but at the opening ceremonies, Putin was there. Um, and, you know, like he fell asleep during the proceedings at one point. And you're just kind of like, God, you know, like we might be not directly or indirectly or whatever. We might be in some way enmeshed in this like gigantic international conflict based on if this one guy wants to or not. It's it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because there's, I mean, obviously, uh, Vladimir Putin has run the show in Russia for about 20 years, a little more than 20 years. And I'm not, it's hard to say whether his, his hold has deepened, you know, it's been pretty deep for, for a long time. There have been a few things that have come out over the course of the last few weeks. One is that there's been some indications, and again, foreign affairs is about feints and, and subterfuges and stuff like that. But there's been some indication that his negotiators, the people actually talking with the NATO people, talking to the US and stuff, are A, not really sure what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean in the sense of whether he's going to invade or not, but kind of what are you doing? Like, what, what, are, what are we, what's our, what's our plan here? And even some sense of, of not fully on board with it. Now, he doesn't need them to be fully on board with it. But um, there's, and separately from that, there is some other indications that particularly particularly during the pandemic, but maybe because of other trends within, within Russia, that the, that the group that is making the decisions has become much smaller and that, and that Putin has become more and more isolated. Now, I don't mean isolated in the sense of isolated within the powers that be within Russia, just kind of just him, right? And uh, so, so probably more than is normally the case, it is kind of, you know, just him. There's been some speculation of, uh, you know, is some of this pulling seem, you know, what has seemed kind of to be pulling back over the last, um, you know, the last few days, is that that he's gotten some level of resistance from within the Russian military or within the sort of the oligarch class that, you know, that has all the power. Now, by resistance, I don't mean resistance like state-breaking resistance, but, you know, resistance like you have. People are saying, dude, we're not sure this is a great idea kind of thing. But one thing that uh, happens in a state like Russia is today when it's so tight is that it's, you know, it's hard to get good intelligence inside, you know, from inside someone's head. Right. I mean, that's it's it's I saw a some commentary about this related topic a few days ago that, uh, you know, the, the U.S. political system is is fairly uh, transparent isn't the right word exactly. There are a lot of different power centers in the U.S. political system and they talk. Right. So you can get a bit more you can get more of a sense with the U.S., um, and it's funny in this in this thing I was reading, one of the one of the people was saying that that just as we often sort of project our assumptions onto Russia, there's a problem in Russia where the Russians all often assume, well, this is really just Biden, you know, Biden and his dog, you know, figuring it out. Well, not really. I mean, there's there's the Pentagon, you know, there's a lot of different moving parts. Um, it's hard to say. I remain skeptical that Russia is ever going to invade Ukraine. I mean, you know. I, this could be, I, I could be wrong by the end of the episode, right? I mean, it certainly seems like it could be very close. The key is, it is just a hell of a gamble because he could get lucky. You start an invasion, the Ukraine government falls, and then you get a friendlier government and you can just leave and say, okay, yeah, we had to, you know, we had to get rid of that terrible government and now we're, you know, just, you know very little cost, unless it doesn't just shatter. And then you're kind of, you know, you're, you're killing a lot of people and the Ukrainians look like the victims because they are the victims and you're occupying a whole country and you're getting severe sanctions and that's hurting all of your oligarch, you know, deputies and stuff, not literal deputies, but you know, that, that kind of system they have there. And it's a big, 
it's a big problem that you can't control the outcome of by your own actions alone. And I suspect that is why they have been kind of hesitating at the brink because it's a huge gamble and there's real, real downsides. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the worst thing you can say about the US role in this, and I think, I don't exactly believe this, but this is one way of looking at it, that the US is basically kind of saying, you know, we're not going to give you concessions. We're not going to hurt ourselves. We're not going to reduce our stature by giving you concessions. And we are going to play up your threats because then if you don't follow through on them, you will look stupid. Your stature will be reduced. You know, oh, oh, threat, oh, war. And then you backed off. I guess you're a paper tiger. And we'll kind of take, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll force you into that situation. And uh, if you do invade Ukraine, yeah. A lot of your people are going to die and your economy is really going to be fucked. And, you know, we're your adversary. So, oh, too bad. You know, that's not great for Ukraine, right? I mean, and this has come up from the Ukrainians through this thing, kind of like you keep saying we're about to be invaded and our people are freaking out. Can you shut the fuck up? Can you stop saying that? Because you're really, you're doing Putin's work for him, right? Kind of like a psychological warfare campaign against us. It's funny because I think all kind of the rundowns I've read have been like, like you say, invasion's a huge gamble. If it turns into anything more than just kind of an instant strike that does enough damage that Russian can get a toehold, if it's anything more than that, it's going to be bloody and protracted and not at all kind of a guaranteed Russian victory. And then all of these articles kind of go in the direction of, and that's why it would be potentially dumb to invade. And then they all uniformly end with, but Putin's been known to act irrationally before. So that's no guarantee of anything, you know? So uh, it's just this an odd precipice to be on. Yeah. And there's also, you know, it's funny. There, there has been a, one of the, it's been a little less in the last, you know, two, three, four days, but there has there's this sort of 12-dimensional chess thing that people get with Putin, where there has been a lot of, you know, Putin's definitely going to invade. The US isn't being strong enough. You know, if he invades, he wins. If he doesn't invade, he wins. You know, kind of like he wins every single way, right? Sort of like how people did with, with Trump in a way, like, oh, he walked out of the White House and he slipped on a banana, but that's just his grand plan, right? It's hard to say. And I do think people, you know, look, a lot of the press, the US press is the US foreign policy and national security press is very wired into the Pentagon and the State Department. And that's not that that's not a matter of their, you know, controlled or not giving us the real story. But you know, you you that's their world, right? Um, and there is this there is this tendency to play up Russian power, Russian smarts, you know, play up what a big threat they are. You know, people who are in, if you're in the US national security community, you can, you, there's not a lot of good, good saying, yeah, they're not that big a deal. We're not worried about Russia because then what, you know, what do you have to work on, right? And, and a lot of the US press sort of follows that at, 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 at some level. And I do think that has, to an extent, made a lot of the US coverage uh, miss some of the things that have gone wrong during this for Russia. Yeah, That's my take. I agree with that. Okay, let's pivot now to domestic politics. Uh, one thing in particular that is coming around the bend, Texas is about to have the first in the nation primary on March 1st. And as our listeners will remember, this primary is governed by SB1, the big omnibus election law that has so much bad stuff in it that Democrats walked out. And then after that, they absconded to D.C., which feels like an actual lifetime ago to me. But turns out it was only a few months ago that that happened. So now we're already starting to see the chaos in the state that this law has unleashed. The biggest form of which so far, since the in-person voting hasn't started yet, is in the form of mail-in ballots. So already in Texas, not a lot of people get to vote absentee. It's you know, people over 65, people with disabilities, people will be out of state on election day. 
But because of this new law, you now have to write down an identification number on both your application to get the ballot and the ballot itself. And that number, you know, can be your driver's license number, last four digits of your social security, things like that. But that number has to match the number you initially put down on your voter registration whenever you did that. Or so else 10 years ago when you, when you signed up, when you registered to vote. Or if you're 90, 70 years right. ago. <laughs> okay. So wait. So, so let me understand this. You have the choice of like you could use your driver's license, you could use social. So there's X number of possibilities and you have to remember which of the various choices you used. So, you, so both of them could be correct. Exactly. It's just you have to remember which you chose. Yep. Okay. And that has some election administrators advising voters to just put down as many numbers as they know on the off chance that it'll match. But of course, you know, the obvious result of this is a flood of rejected applications, a flood of rejected ballots. Some counties are seeing higher percents of rejected materials than they've ever seen before. And then kind of compounding this problem is you've got this ballot tracker that the Secretary of State's office has set up, which, you know, objectively, usually a good thing, right? Because that gives voters more time to fix mistakes if they've come up to know where the ballot is in the process. However, to access the database, you have to have both your driver's license and your social security number, even though you only need one of those things to vote at all. So people have been having a ton of issues with that. And I spoke to one administrator who's in Harris County, uh, which is contains Houston. It's, It's the most populous county in Texas. They have their own kind of individual, just county-wide ballot tracker that they stood up on their own. Uh, and that only needs one of those numbers to track it. So for for their confused voters, they can be like, okay, here's your off-ramp, you know, but obviously that does not apply to everyone in Texas. And one of the weirdest things about these issues so far is they've overwhelmingly hurt old voters, people who are over 65. And That's a little nonsensical because white voters over 65 are one of Republicans' most dependable voting blocks. And now you've got these people who multiple people told me they've had older voters really, really upset because, you know, they vote every election. They take pride in voting every election. And now they're having their stuff rejected. You know, it's 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 interesting because some of this is, I guess, you know, um, unforeseen consequences, but sometimes they get sort of just turned around on their own about these things. You know, kind of you have a general sense that, you know, you want to stop the bad people from voting. So you kind of tighten everything up. But tightening, you know, different kinds of tightening affect different groups of people. And it's it's a little, um, it's not clear what the what the outcomes have been. And, and a lot of those, uh, you know, there's a Texas law, there's a Georgia law. And some of those things, that amount to tightening, you see, you know, in isolation, and you're like, eh, okay, got to put the last four of your social. Like, you know, sounds reasonable. Um, uh, most people I know know they're social, not everybody, but you know, you just do, you just do so many of these things, and and you know, the the consequences are kind of unforeseen. Now, I I thought they had, okay, so it's so it's they have very little mail slash absentee voting, but at least before this new law, they had a fair amount of early voting. Now, how is this, how is SB1 affect or SB whatever affected early voting? Um, yeah, it's constrained it. Um, tighten the window. You know, they, you'll remember the big kind of initial uh, flare up around SB1 is that they were going to not have any early voting on Sundays, which Right. The black community in Texas specifically said, you know, this is a clear effort to dampen the souls to the polls uh, effort. So they didn't end up using that. But yeah, I mean, it's all it's these little things, you know, and it's the interesting thing about it to me is I've been kind of puzzling over why do this? Why target mail in voting in this way when you know that the greatest chunk of people who use it is probably a voting block that favors you? But I kind of I think there are there are different options, right? I think one of them maybe is just an unforeseen consequence. Okay. Two, maybe the point is to make voting as hard as you can across the board and just hope that the harms to the party are ultimately outweighed by the gains of suppressing, you know, democratic voters. And then third, there is this piece that, you know, it feels like ancient history now, but 
Trump's war on mail-in voting was a, a sustained months-long effort. Yeah, and this happened right yeah. after that, you know? So I think, and we, t- we talked about that at the time, that there wasn't at all clear evidence that turning people off of mail-in voting was strategically going to help him get more Republican votes, but it just kind of was his entryway into the election is illegitimate. So he, he stuck on it anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, th- th- absolutely. And and um, it was, you know, it's a complicated, it's a complicated story to say exactly how he got onto mail-in voting as the thing. And as you said, I mean, kind of, you know, the, 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 the big, you know, the steel, mail-in voting, that was, you know, it wasn't even like, like voter ID used to be everything, right? And voter ID was barely even in, you know, kind of it was there, but it wasn't the big thing, but that was his obsession. And some of that was, was these, these very specific things about the dynamics of the 2020 election, that we were in the middle of a pandemic, lots of states, um, you know, turned up the dial on mail-in voting because you don't want people having to go and get COVID at the, all that kind of stuff. And they saw early on that that would be an argument for them, you know, this mail-in voting was corrupt. It was this. So you have this obsession with mail voting, uh, mail-in voting, mail voting too, probably. Um, obsession with mail-in voting and that derives from this sort of the specific aspects of the 2020 election. He is, you know, nonstop on that right about the time, as you say, that this is being put into law. So all of those guys are like, mail-in voting, mail-in voting. Uh, we got to crack down on mail-in voting. Now, what what I didn't realize, which you just mentioned, is that Texas, I guess Texas specifically has a high, I forget what they, what the phrase is. It's basically when you need an excuse, Mm -hmm. you need to say, Hey, I'm old. It's hard for me to get to the thing or I'm disabled or, you know, kind of something like that. You can't just say, "Eh, cause I don't want to, cause, cause I, cause I don't feel like it. Cause I'd rather just use an envelope that you can't do that. And it sounds like from what you're saying that one of the biggest classes that had a, you know, automatic excuse, people over 65. So that, putting a lot of obstacles in the way of mail-in voting in Texas specifically had this strong age skew because that's the one group that I, from what you're saying, it sounds like anybody, anybody over 65 just checks that box, good to go. Um, so you do wonder whether they got carried away by the sort of the, um, you know, the excitement of the Trumpite push <laughs> against all mail voting didn't sound like, oh, wait a second, how is this actually going to affect us here in Texas? Maybe not, you know, maybe not great. Yeah. Anyway, there exactly. You go. And no, I think that's so right. Because if you, you know, the idea in, in the amorphous idea of not letting a lot of people vote by mail in Texas, that makes sense to Republicans purposes, you know, especially post 2020, when there was a surge in mail in voting, and that kind of creates a new dynamic where if more people are used to mail-in voting, they're going to keep doing it. And that means expanding that way of voting to people who maybe haven't used that way before, which, you know, creates all kinds of potential good opportunities for Democrats. But yeah, I mean, going after the few, the small groups that do do it, it just seems, it really seems like this bill was kind of, let's make voting as hard as possible and we'll figure out the particulars later. Now, Um, as long as we're on it, can you just give us a a kind of a very top level overview of what are the other restrict. I mean, we've talked about mail-in voting. What are the other big restrictions that did make it into that bill? Yeah. I mean, one particular aspect that will probably come up in a bigger way in the general election is that this bill really protects the partisan poll watchers more than they have in the past. And, you know, makes it harder to kick them out of polls, basically kind of wears away the protections for election workers who are saying, you know, you're harassing me, you're harassing the voters, that kind of thing. And that is an area where voting groups kind of fought hard against the initial provision. So it's basically not as slanted in the direction of the poll watchers as it was, but it still gives them a lot of protections. And basically every kind of advocate or administrator I talked to when I was talking about, okay, like, let's put this to the future, you know, what What are you worried about that's coming down the pike? They pretty much all cited this as a way for people to kind of use the poll watcher position as an intimidating one to potentially kind of scare voters away from the polls. Um, it's also had the effect of chilling recruitment efforts to get poll workers, to get people to volunteer because they're like, hey, look, you know, I, I don't want to kind of volunteer my time if it means I'm going to be, you know, 
accused of mishandling the election or something. And then another big piece of this that um, actually was just struck down days ago is that election workers were forbidden from soliciting mail-in ballots. And that was a direct uh, reaction to in 2020, a Harris County administrator tried to preemptively mail out uh, mail-in ballot applications to all the registered voters in the county. And so as a direct result against that, they said, you can't solicit mail-in ballots. You can't promote mail-in ballots. It got to the point that administrators would get phone calls from voters asking questions about mail-in ballots and they'd be afraid to say anything because the fines were so steep. We're talking like $10,000 and six months in jail and all this ridiculously punitive stuff that a few days ago, a federal judge was like, yeah, no, gonna gonna cross that part out. The freedom, the, the administrator's freedom of speech covers them letting voters know that mail-in voting is an option and how to do it. But again, it's like that happened days ago. And then honestly, the biggest part of this bill, of this law is that it went online December 2nd. That's just almost no time for the administrators to learn the ins and outs of the law, for them to educate voters on it, which is like a very hard task to do in general. So it's just been all these kind of unforeseen administrative hurdles and not enough staff to keep up with trying to teach people about the new system. And and all of that just seems, you know, by design, make things as hard as possible, make voting as unattractive as possible. And you're pretty much going to guarantee that not that many people will vote. You know, there, there's also this um, this case. There was this woman, and I believe this woman and her daughter in Georgia, I believe in Atlanta. You know, election worker. This she got wrapped up into all the conspiracy theories about you know, like a um, a chest of votes being taken out of in the night and caught in you know all this kind of stuff. And she was, uh, what was it? She was the one who was. You know, someone who works for Kanye West was saying she's going to be arrested and and she was, you know, kind of get you get pulled into that whole kind of right wing conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory machine and death threats and stuff like that. And like if I were, I mean, wouldn't really apply to me here in here in New York. We don't you know, we don't have a lot of that stuff uh, going on. But if I were someone or or my wife or someone I knew was, you know, an election worker in like Arizona or Texas or Georgia, yeah, I'd be like, man, maybe not worth it. Yep. Like you're going to get, you know, it's do you want to have that your life turned upside down? And 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 that's scary. You know, it's always um I think those of us from the outside, you know, we see the we see these things happen. Maybe they get death threats. None of these people have been assassinated, right? Um, people make legal scare threats. None of them have actually been arrested. But that's easy for us to say, right? <laughs> I mean, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. Um, and it's not like you know, being an election worker. It's not like being a movie star. <laughs> or being like a lawyer at a white shoe law firm, you're like, oh, I'll take the take the risks because the payoffs are so high. It's 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 not real, you know. It, it depending on where you are in the election administration uh, hierarchy, either it is just a kind of a regular civil servant's job that makes a kind of a modest income, or it's or it's you know seasonal minimum wage work. I mean, well, you're not you're not getting anything. It's basically just a civic participation thing. And when you raise the costs like this, what's the point? Right. I mean, and I just I think it's good to just zoom out for a second because we've got this and then we've also just got, you know, Texas coming out with its redistricting map, which despite the fact that 99% of the growth in Texas has been due to the explosive growth of communities of color, you know, they didn't add any new seat that would be controlled by voters of color, that Texas is so, so gerrymandered as to make it seem like it's a, you know, almost complete majority Republican state, which as we know, is simply not the case. But I just think it it comes up a lot, you know, this whole idea of like Texas as Democrats, white whale, they always think they're so close and then they don't get it. They are close. I mean, composition wise, they are very close. But the problem is you've got laws like this with a Republican majority legislature where Democrats can't do anything about it. And then that same legislature also sets up the maps to make sure they never lose. So it's just, you know, it's it's such a good example of all of these kind of structural hacks Republicans have pulled off that just 
make the state completely non-competitive despite its composition and how many of its voters are Democrats. You know, and in one of our recent episodes, we talked about how, you know, Democrats have done surprisingly well in redistricting, even Mm -hmm. by some estimations have, uh, you know, gained you know, it's it's always kind of what you're talking about when you say gain seats. We're not we haven't had an election, um, but have maybe gained advantage in a couple seats as opposed to losing advantage in ten seats and something like that. But one of the things I think you brought this up in one of your articles is that you know one of the things that goes into that is that Republicans use that redistricting power not to get more Republican seats. These are already heavily gerrymandered states, but to say, well, you know, we had these seats that have really kind of become a little, you know, a little more marginal because of population changes. Let's just shore them up. Let's get them back to being 15 point, you know, uh, Republican advantage districts. Whereas between now, you know, between uh, 2010 and now they've drifted towards some of them are six point. Republican districts. And you can, as Republicans, you can lose a six-point Republican district, especially if it's trending against you. So yeah, I mean, beneath that beneath that good news that redistricting ended up better than, than Democrats had feared, a lot of that's just that it was already really, really gerrymandered and they were able to use uh, the additional, what did they get? Two seats? Two new seats in this? Yeah. To use those two new seats and the you know continued uh, you know gerrymandering advantages to just shore those up and keep it where it's been, which for Republicans rocks. Yeah, well, and I think you know it sounds like just kind of a wonky little thing. This idea that there are almost no competitive House races left, but it's hugely important to what the Republican Party has become. Because if your only competition is going to be a primary from your right you're going to go to your right. I mean, it just encourages this environment when we have Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, because all you got to worry about is out crazying the other Republican. And you're going to slide through the general because it's a 15 point Republican seat. And there's no Democrat who could reasonably challenge that. So it just also, you know, adds flame to the fire of this environment where Republicans are becoming wedged so far to their right and so extreme because there is absolutely no political incentive to not be that way. Right, right. No, you know, and and uh, something a parallel thing has happened on the Democratic side. Maybe there's not, you know, there's not the same kind of rush to the left. I mean, some of our listeners probably wish there was, but there's not. But the the Democratic seats have also become less competitive. Mm-hmm. They have been shored up. And and one thing, and I mean, I am glad they did it in New York. One of the one of the things they did is Democrats basically said, "We're going to gerrymander here. You're doing it everywhere. We're not going to unilaterally um, uh, disarm." And they did that, and I think that was exactly the right decision. But but. The effect of that has been to create less competitive districts. I mean, they've basically, you know, uh, Elise Stefanik, you know, the woman who, uh, the sort of the the, the quizling who who uh, took over um, Liz Cheney's job. Who, and again, th- this is someone who was like borderline never Trumper back in 2016. You know, kind of moderate New York Republican who went totally in for Trump. One of the things the Democrats did in New York State is they basically said, you know, all right, let's find all the Republicans north of Westchester County in New York, and we're going to put them all into one district, and it'll be at least Stefanik's district. So the redistricting, in a way, has been great for her. They've made like a 20-point Republican district that is like, you know, a huge, it's basically, you know, half of upstate New York with carve-arounds for uh, any of the cities and any place where hippies live, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and just made it like a totally GOP district. So it's on both sides. They've um, all seats, Republican seats, Democratic seats have all become less competitive because of, because of all this. Right. Okay. So briefly, let's talk about something that's been going on in the Senate in recent days, which is that Sarah Bloom Raskin, the wife of uh, Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin and former Deputy Treasury Secretary under Obama and former member of the Board of Governors to the Fed, she's been nominated uh, as one of five members, you know, kind of a slate to fill out the Fed. And Republicans I didn't have- realize she was his, his wife. I didn't. Yep. I didn't mm-hmm. I, I'm always last to know. And uh, so Republicans have decided to vociferously oppose her nomination. Um, They say 
nominally. She hasn't given them good enough answers to their questions. But it basically comes down to A, she has spoken pretty freely about the fact that she thinks the United States is kind of lagging behind our counterparts in taking climate change as a fact, a risk factor to to banks' well-being and the whole financial system, um, which doesn't sound that controversial to me. But this idea that climate change is going to make everything unstable, so of course it would also make the financial system unstable. And she also wrote um, an op-ed during the pandemic where she criticized the payment protection program for giving loans to fossil fuel companies. So the combination of those two things have basically, Republicans have contorted that into, you've got Mitch McConnell saying she wants to make the Fed a a leftist activist organ kind of thing. And then you also have then Pat Toomey, who's kind of leading this charge saying, you know, she wants to use the Fed to punish the fossil fuel sector, which is unfair, which is not the job all that stuff. And then you've got kind of a secondary issue where while she was on the board of governors for the Fed, a company that she was working for got some kind of special Fed status where they got to, you know, have access to their system and basically saying like, oh, that that was a conflict of interest, even though it seems that that question has kind of been run through, you know, the the local Fed, the national Fed, all this kind of stuff. And it, it doesn't seem like there's really all that much there. But the combination of these things have made Republicans decide, you know, that they are totally opposed her nomination. So earlier this week on the Senate Banking and Housing Committee, which is an even split, you know, this came out of that organizing resolution, which, you know, we dealt with ages ago where McConnell was holding it up and they made all these compromises. It's an even split, which means that Republicans boycotted the hearing, which would have sent the nominations of Raskin plus these others to the Senate to kind of, you know, get to the floor vote and get them confirmed. They boycotted it which means it's stuck and it can't go anywhere. And there's no real procedural move that Democrats can currently, under current Senate rules, do to discharge that to the floor. I thought there was always this thing where the majority leader can, if something is stuck or even gets or even gets voted down at the committee level, that the majority leader can just bring it to the floor. What happened to that? I was under that same impression, but I think it has to do with the split of the committee. Huh. And we're certain, and it's not just that that they are, um, you know, hesitating to do it. No, I mean, it would require a change in Senate rules. I think, hmm. you know, they're denying quorum rather than voting it down, and that might affect the parliamentary rules. But you know, so we had this very odd situation this week where it was like half the table was full, and Democrats were kind of going around saying. I think making valid points, including Republicans are kind of whacking Joe Biden for inflation day in, day out, and then boycotted really one of the only ways the Senate can at all address inflation, right, which is by filling out the Fed and at least having no vacancies or acting roles on that board. Well, it's funny because when I heard about this, um, you know, they're boycotting the hearings, I was sort of like, great, you know, sounds like the Jan 6 committee. You know, if you you don't want to show up, it'll only only be Democrats asking questions. Awesome. I can live with that. I didn't I didn't realize there was there was this issue. And I must say, I'm really confused about what the what the parliamentary detail here is, because, again, it's always been this issue. I mean, this was when um, when that uh, when that deal was struck about Mm -hmm. equal representation on the committees. This was always the thing, kind of like, you know, sort of who cares because, in, in, you know, the, the majority leader can just, there's some term for it where you just kind of pick it up out of the committee and bring it to the floor. So who cares what the committee, you know, just the committee doesn't matter. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to learn what that exception is because, yeah, that's a pretty, I mean. Okay, here it is. So yeah. Senate rules adopted in February 2021 specify that a majority of committee members must be present to, con- to conduct business. So it's just the fact of the boycott, which, hmm. and then. But couldn't the, they do that with every, like every judicial appointment then? Well, that is what has been coming up because the Senate judiciary is also evenly split. You know, I saw an article on this the other day that was kind of like, is this how Republicans are going to do business now? And my reaction was kind of similar to yours, which is, first of all, I don't think this is like a, a new idea. I think they knew that they had this power because this question has come up before, like, oh, are you going to boycott this committee hearing, blah, blah, blah. And they could have done that 
with the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is where all the judicial nominees file through, also evenly split. So I don't know. I, I find and, it a and, bit perplexing. And okay, so so and and a majority. So that means that you actually only need one Republican exactly. to show up. To, right. to, to do it. So you need it to be universal. You need every Republican on the committee not to show up. Um, and is the idea here that 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 Manchin and Cinema wouldn't allow a change to this rule? No idea. I mean, honestly, given what we and predicting with these two, you know, always folly, but this is something that would, to me, strikes me as something that Manchin would see as unfair that he would not be okay with the boycotting of the the votes things. I mean, he's so kind of stuck on this idea of what a president is. Is it allowed that we've seen it kind of spill over into the direction that makes Democrats want to die, you know, with the whole, I, I wouldn't vote for a Supreme Court nominee in the weeks before an election. I think that's kind of connected to this. He, he seems to have a pretty solid sense that you know, no matter the party, this is what you get to do. And this is something that the pow- the party in power gets to do. And I, I mean, I could be wrong, but this seems like the kind of rule change I could actually, I think he would probably be on board with because it's so small and procedural and it would just involve being able to discharge nominees to the floor when there's not a quorum. You know, that's such mm-hmm. a small tweak. Mm-hmm. And it also, it's not like that means that they are confirmed. There still has to be a floor vote. I mean, Republicans do have opportunities here to kind of use their vote. They're just right. being kind of sore losers because they don't have the numbers right. Right. requisite right. to shoot her down. I also wonder, is is there something about the composition of that committee that makes it easier? Like, do they have none of the you know, Romney, Murkowski, Collins types who maybe they couldn't get the, you know, every single last Republican to, to pull, because it's a funny place. You'd, you'd think this would have happened on judicial stuff. That's where the action is. Right. I mean, you know, they, they, they can make a big deal out of it. Um, but yeah, generally, kind of, yeah. kind of quickly scanning down their, their membership list. They don't have any of those kind of usual Usual suspects. Usual suspects, yeah. I mean, Toomey is the, the ranking member who, I mean, he's not like insane, but he's not a Romney he's by pretty, any means. He's, he's pretty, I mean, it's, it, the, the standard keeps changing. He <laughs> right. was, when he was elected, he's a pretty far, I mean, Toomey's one of these guys who at the level of collegiality, you know, you're not going to see, I think he actually uh, took a fairly hard line on the Jan 6 stuff. Like, you know, he wasn't one of the people who would not approve, you know, who would challenge or something like that. So on on certain kind of things, he's, you know, semi-normal. But um, when he was in the House, I mean, he's a, you know, sort of a hardcore club for growth, libertarian guy. Um, You've also got like Tom Tillis, who is a kind of occasionally flirts with these Romney Collins Murkowski stuff, but not to the extent that you would expect him to be like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and show up and sit by myself on the Republican side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, let's get to questions. Okay. Um, So our first is going to kind of bring us back to where we started this episode on the the Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, David says it's difficult for him to reconcile the competing interests to have a proper view of the East-West dialectic, especially regarding the Russian-NATO showdown. He says you got the mainstream mainstream media on one hand focusing on questions of, you know, what will Putin do? What does he want? Will he invade? And then he says on the left, naked capitalism promotes a peace that portrays the West as as hegemonist, trying to box in Russia to humiliate it while exploiting Western ties, um, forcing Europe into buying expensive American gas, et cetera, et cetera. So it feels like there might be war. What am I to make of this framing? What actions are really correct or good for the West in this context? Well, this is, you know, I tried to get at some of this in a post a couple days ago. A lot of this stuff of, of, you know, we're trying to get Europe to buy American gas or buy, uh, you know, U.S. weapons and all that, that, that's, that stuff's not really true. There's some margin of that. We want new markets and stuff like that. But that that's not what is going on here. And this idea that we are trying to box Russia in and humiliate them and all that, that is a lot of that is just kind of lefty claptrap that is you know um since since the US isn't great countries that are rivals of the US must be better kind of stuff having said that there are decisions the US made 25 years ago when we expanded NATO to basically we basically enrolled all of the Warsaw Pact into NATO 
and more. And there were a lot of people at the time, I would would um, include myself in that list, although there wasn't a lot of, as a graduate student, I did not have a, a lot of influence on these questions at the time. But basically, we took this moment when Russia was on its knees and expanded our binding military alliance right up to their borders. Russia is a country with a history of a great power with an aggressive and expansionist foreign policy, with a lot of well-earned history and paranoia about being invaded, because they have been invaded a bunch of times. And so the idea that you are going to expand your military alliance right up to their borders, and that that's just going to be fine, and they're going to be fine with it, is crazy. Now, you can do it or not do it, and there were some arguments for doing it, one of which is people who said, look, this is a country that has been a bad actor on the world stage for a long time and has has destabilized and threatened Europe for a long time. So take the moment when they are weak to kind of lock in a different arrangement. So there's and, and the the funny thing about this is there were a lot of people in the US in kind of positions of influence in the sort of the US foreign policy elite who genuinely had this idea we're just bringing all the cool stuff the Western Europeans had after World War II. We're giving it to Poland and, and Romania and Czechoslovakia. Russia doesn't have anything to fear from that. We're not invading Russia. Why, you know, we just have to make them under, you know, drop their paranoia and, 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 and understand. Well, sort of. But if Russia, like, you know, basically made a, made a military alliance with Canada and Mexico... We wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't like that. And for good, you know, for good reason. Now, I don't see the U.S. and Russia as, as similar countries in a lot of ways. So, so there is, what I'm trying to get to in this is to say that there are decisions we made decades ago now, in part to maximize our advantage as a great power, in part by sort of myopia and naivete that gave a lot of Russians the belief that you are trying to box us in. We're a great power. We're a great power with a great history and a sphere of influence. And you're trying to box us in and make us kind of nothing. And there's some real truth in that. But what has also happened is that Russia has become basically what we call in foreign policy terms a revisionist power, trying to break up the current world, you know, world state system, because they think it's in their advantage, and have been uh, trying to export authoritarianism around the world, uh, meddling in our elections um, in the United States, uh, repeatedly invading or threatening uh, neighbor countries. So it's always been a little hard for you can look at this either way. One is to say, look, this is why we should have never expanded NATO. Because we kind of created this relationship for ourselves with Russia and we kind of, you know, we, you know, our actions sort of help create this. The other way to look at it is that this is why certain, this is why certain people said we should do this. Because they're, they're, they have a kind of a, a, a tradition of expansionism and bad acting on the world stage. And we're seeing that now. And they're both kind of true. Um, I think in the present moment, those things are kind of kind of moot. I think what is really happening here is that Russia wants to keep Ukraine basically a satellite state, um, does not want it to become part of the sort of the European economic block, which most Ukrainians do want to. It's more prosperous. There's a lot of good stuff you get. And, and really, in some ways, this is more about Ukraine becoming part of the EU or part, if not officially, in practice, and uh, leaving Russia separate. And, you know, you shouldn't uh, launch unprovoked invasions of other countries. The fact that the US kind of did that with Iraq doesn't make it right for Russia to do it now. So I think for David, a lot of um, it's important to understand this history. It's important to understand that in many ways, Russia is a greatly diminished power, but it is also, in, in many key ways, a bad acting force in global politics right now. And we have a lot of reasons to 
do everything we can to prevent them from, no one thinks they're going to literally annex Ukraine, but doing stuff militarily that will make Ukraine a territory of Russia in effect, if even if they're nominally independent. So that's, that's my best, uh, you know, my best take at how to see the context of what's happening here. Yeah. Okay. Last question from Diana, who says, do you think that if the GOP wins in 2022 and 2024, that the country will be irretrievably lost to fascists? And then she jokes that she knows it's a light question. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. I think things are much more incremental than that, but it's a big deal. There's a huge amount on, you know, at stake. I just think things are you know, countries become less democratic and then they become more democratic. There's no, I think, I think we do ourselves a disservice from both sides in thinking too much in binary terms, although there, the threats are great, but we're all in this for the long haul. America is not going to end in 2024. And by that, I mean, in the sense that like, we're still all going to be here. Maybe a few of us are going to like, you know, get a, get a passport in Europe and go to Europe. But most of us are all still going to be here. We're going to still, those of us who want civic democracy are still going to want it. Um, and if things go really badly in 2022 and 2024, we're still going to be faced with, all right, what do we do next? So basically, in all senses, even though I think the threats are very grave, as you state the question, no, I do not think it'll be irretrievably lost to fascists. I sometimes when I get so stressed about what what we're covering in our job and what sometimes it feels like a lot of us, and I include our listeners in this, are watching every day while a lot of people are just not watching and not understanding how drastic the threats are. I sometimes ask our, our colleagues, like, are, are you as freaked out as I am? You know, am I the only one who's feeling kind of overwhelming stress about this? And something our colleague Matt said to me when I asked him kind of stuck with me. And he said, when I get really, you know, when I get like that, when I feel very scared and stressed, it helps me to think about how this has happened in America before and not specifically this, but how our democracy has gone through horrible periods. I mean, violent suppressive periods, you know, you, you think reconstruction, you think the civil rights movement, and not just those, we've had a lot of periods where we see progress immediately followed by vicious backlash that's all about taking power away from some people and concentrating it in the hands of others. That's not a new story for us. So I think when this stuff feels so big and scary and earth shattering, it can be helpful to think, like you say, Josh, there are ebbs and flows and there have been ebbs and flows in our history. And it, you know, when it feels like we're on the precipice and, and like you say, the threats I think are very grave. We've been on those precipices before and we've been in a, we've had in our history periods of being far from a perfect democracy. Yeah. I think that that's really the thing is that we should not understate the threats that civic democracy faces in this country. And, and they're real. And there are certain specific mechanisms, threats by specific mechanisms we really haven't faced before. And they're they're big and they're very real. But this country's been around for almost a quarter of a, of a millennium. And, you know, Adam Smith has this quote, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. And there is. And uh, the one thing I would push people not to think in terms of is this idea of, you know, the last election, the, you know, irretrievable, because not only is that very, very demoralizing, but it's, it's not how things work. There's still a next thing. You know, we're, I mean, you can even say, uh, now, and I don't anticipate something like this, there were various final elections in Eastern Europe in the late 40s, right? Uh, where in some cases, communists actually won an election or sort of won an election and then, you know, instituted a, 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 um, a party dictatorship. But they're having elections now. Now, if we didn't have a, if if we had a totalitarian state for forty years, yeah, that'd be a pretty big bummer. And I do not anticipate that. My point is simply, history goes on, and there are still questions about what to do and how to move forward the next day, even after very bad things happen. 
to be clear, I do not expect a 40-year dictatorship. I don't expect anything like that. But to Kate's point and Matt's point, we have had very big ebbs and flows in this country. And for certain groups, we've had democracy totally end for them for decades, right? And there's a new day and there's a new election and there's new things. So uh, no, I'm not that pessimistic either characterologically or factually. So insert the the arc of the moral universe quote here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. Well, I you know I don't even know if it bends towards justice, but it keeps bending, right? We at uh, least have that. Yeah. So uh, remember the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See you next Later. week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.